Present Tense Podcast by Green Bucket Press. Hi, this is Anne Markham Bailey, host and producer of Present Tense Podcast. We're moving farther into our series, The Fight for Alabama's Last Wild Places. And today, we hear from Bob Crow. When I heard about Bob Crow for the first time, it was said that she walked barefoot in the forest, was trained as a yoga teacher at Kripalu, and found snakes to be friendly and playful. I was excited to meet her, but not surprised. One thing I'd learned was that there was no end to the astonishing power of the people who rose from the warrior mountains, who resonated with the forest at a deep level, helped to save these sacred spaces. In episode six, Janice Barrett of Wild South joins me in a deep conversation with Bob Crow, a person who radiates spunk, intelligence, and a connection with the sacred feminine that is, in my view, a key to many of the problems that we face as human beings. Her recognition of the imperative to protect the wild from what she calls the hordes of thieves led her to join the movement of warriors that brought lasting change to Alabama. A side note, throughout the episode, you'll hear reference to the Warrior Mountains. This is the old and original English name for what is now called the Bankhead National Forest, named for Alabama Senator William Bankhead, father of film star Tallulah Bankhead. If you like what you hear, go back to the start of this series, the fight for Alabama's last wild places. Please leave us a review and a rating. Check out our support information on greenbucketpress.com backslash present-tense-podcast. And now for the episode. coming to the Bankhead National Forest and the Sipsi Wilderness? I believe I started regularly visiting in 1982. I had been there as a teenager to that tower that's not far off of Highway 41 on Leola Road. I had climbed that tower before they ever took it down. And my uncle, when I was just a kid, maybe 10 years old, was doing some logging in the forest, and they'd come by before daylight and pick him up on a truck, on the back of a truck, and go pick up some other men, and they'd go. They were doing it with mules back then, mules and horses. So I think that was probably a much kinder way of doing it. And he'd come home talking about the, the bluffs and the things that he saw up there, and I wanted always to go, but I was not allowed to. So <laughs> when I did did discover it, I have never stopped. I, I hope I never do. Okay, so one thing really stood out. There have been lots of things that happened to me in the forest. Uh, this is outside the wilderness, but one night... Um, I went camping with a friend in one of the west a little bit of 
west a little bit and south of Gum Pond Cemetery. And we cooked our supper and put our pads down in this bluff shelter that's kind of slanted like that. And uh, made our beds and went to sleep. We banked the fire, put ashes over it so we'd have some coals the next morning to start the fire with. And uh, in the middle of the night, I woke up. We weren't in a tent. We were just under the shelter. I woke up, and my back was turned to the outside, and I was facing the bluff. And on the side of the bluff, I could see the flames of the fire. The fire had come back. And I thought, we banked that fire really well. It's strange. And then I heard a wolf. It was not a coyote. It was a wolf howl. And so I turned over, and I looked. And I did not know there was going to be a full moon eclipse, but the moon was in eclipse. So I woke my friend and I said, the moon is in eclipse. You've got to get up and see this. No, I saw one one time. <laughs> but I sat there and watched it. So that was just kind of magical. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, one time over on Capsie Creek, when I discovered that... Uh, petroglyph on that rock and I was standing on it and watching a coyote on the other side of the the mountain over there going above, above the bluffs and I looked down and I was standing on this beautiful it's about it looks like uh, maybe a sun symbol to me uh, it's round and it has radiating lines going around it. Um, that's the best thing that I can tell you about it. And it's about, what, about two feet? Uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Or, yeah, at least. And I made a mistake when I found it because I had a pocket knife and I sat down there and I, it was covered with moss and the moss was growing in the little lines and that's how I saw it was it was defined by the moss that was growing in the little deep places. Mm -hmm. So an idiot that I am, I picked every bit of that out. And a few years later, when I took you there, I believe it was, I noticed that when I took that moss out, it's in the creek. The water, and at flood time, when the water's up high, it erodes that sandstone. And it had eroded so much. So any time I ever show that to anybody now, I don't let them, don't pick the moss out if you, because in two or three times, I think it would totally disappear. That really stands out. Uh, my friend, uh, Jean, who worked at Decatur Daily and I used to hike and camp and canoe together. And we were in there one night, one day, it wasn't night. We were planning on staying. We were in this shelter, and we heard these drums, like Indian drums. We left. That was too, uh, that was too powerful for us, so we didn't stay. I, I just felt like that was. <laughs> and I think one of the most beautiful things that we ever experienced, Jean and I, we went in there. She got off work on Friday, and we were going camping on Friday night. And we met at Gum Pond Cemetery. We plan was to uh, camp that night in the Maddox Motel. It's, there's room enough, that's for sure. And there's a chimney over in the corner, that's for sure. But it's storming. And so the first thing we did was put our uh, garbage bags on our packs and fix it where we could get our hands through, you know, to cover up our packs. And we had on rain gear. So we took out, and before we got there, it was dark. So here's lightning flashing down across the gully there. So we beelined it across from the trail across down and back up again. Got over there, got in there, and I started to build a fire. Well, that chimney over in that corner was just stopped up with debris. So I said, okay, Jean, you stay here, and I'll go around the corner, and I'll find us another place. So I went around the corner and found us another place to camp. But we sat there with a fire under that little, in the front, built it out front of the shelter, and watched that lightning across that 
that hollow, it was gorgeous. And the thunder would just boom, you know, more louder than it is here at home. You know, it's just great. I love it. It is. Yeah. Recently, we were on a, the, I guess it was the last hike we were on. The fact that Jim is not able to get up and go and do anything anymore, and that they don't says, "Bob, you need a happy pill." I said, "I have one every week when I get to go on the hike. That's my happy pill till the next time." <laughs> it's true. It's to me, it seems the concentration of available beauty, the very uh, things that kind of define the Sipsu wilderness, I think, are the canyons, the waterfalls, the, the creeks and the rivulets and the springs. Um, there are the, We have those in other places too, but they're not so concentrated and so so easy to get into and out of and so available, you know. Uh, it's just almost any draw you go down, you're going to find a waterfall or at least a cascade, you know, a little stream to watch. Um, the arborglyphs that are there in the forest that show, we, we've seen some that, uh, where they've drawn maps. Then one of them had a, it looked like a Y, but we figured it out because it said, and they, this was phonic spelling, Y, Back, B-E-C-K, and it was the two streams coming together, and it we've found found a map twice like that. Hmm. Yeah, the 1932 deer stand across the creek from across the Sipsi River from uh, Lloyd's Creek. There's a tree with a 1932 somebody's deer stand is carved on that creek and it's sitting right on the Sipsi River and there's a little deep deep draw we couldn't even get in it it was so steep and couldn't go in from this because the water was so high and a waterfall in it but we couldn't go down in there but sitting right out there from that so the, I think the arbor glyphs and the mortars and things like that you find up there the evidence of people who came before us and people who lived here for many, many years before the horde of thieves came over. That's what they were, a horde of thieves. And that's what we are, we still are, doing the same thing to us. I think I was out on the trail up there at the Thompson Creek Trailhead, and I ran into Lamar Marshall. <laughs> and he's handing out this one-page thing that said Bankhead Monitor, and he started talking to us, telling us how the Forest Service was going up on the ridges, and they were leaving this uh, screen of hardwoods. So if you're driving along or walking along, you see the hardwoods, and you think that that's the way the forest is supposed to be, but they were going back behind that, taking out the hardwoods and putting in pine plantations. And so that was how I became aware of it. And I'm, I'm thinking... You know, you don't have the same kind of undergrowth and stuff in a pine forest that you do in a hardwood forest. And what are the animals that use those old hardwoods that have the hollows in them, like the raccoons and the owls? What are they going to do now for their habitat? And you can't just say, well, that it went over to the next area. Chances are that next area already has its inhabitants, and there's not room for everybody when you start taking out their habitat. So that was the danger, I thought, was taking away habitat for uh, owls and raccoons and woodpeckers and things like that that depend on those trees, not only for food, but for to have a home, to have a baby. We need all of it. We need the pine trees, but not in plantations. They need to be dispersed like they're supposed to be uh, throughout instead of just concentrated in one place. 
had the opportunity that we have. If we had more forests and they were more accessible, I think it would help people mentally, physically, spiritually, especially spiritually. You can go alone in the forest by yourself if you're pondering a problem that you're struggling with. You'll come out of there with an answer, or it'll be in your dream that night. You'll get an answer. It's such a, a beautiful thing for your soul just to get out there and let nature just soak into you. Just accept it on its own terms. You're not afraid. There's no reason to be afraid out there in our forest unless it's another human being. I have encountered a couple of weird ones that do go out there and enjoy it. It is definitely a healing thing. Healing thing. If I could just extend that to the I think you do have to be quiet and let it let it find you. Be open for that spiritual healing. What is it the the Japanese in the book? Uh, Teaching the Trees by Joan Maloof. The Japanese call it Shinrin-yoku, I believe. That's That's the word that they use for the healing of the trees when you're out there like that. I have no idea what those words mean, but... It literally means forest air bathing. Okay. I had forgotten your, yeah, I remember now that you mentioned it, I had forgotten that. That's a good term, forest air bathing. That's a good thing. From your point of view. Just what we were talking about, that forest air bathing is just, it's healing, it's healing. Uh, For me, that's church. That's where uh, the spirit of the goddess is the mother God uh, and for me God is not a male God is a female had to have been mother God to have nurtured all this to have it happen sanity building uh, it shares with you uh, things you need to know if you'll let it save the forest when I met Lamar, Lamar, Pat Weeks, Pat and Farron, Bobby Gillespie, Charlie Seaford, Rob Cox, and uh, the strategy was to bring awareness. Uh, to people as to what was being done and uh, Lamar put out a magazine that was first it was the little one page thing and then it uh, became the Bankhead Monitor and then that turned into a magazine which turned into Wild Alabama magazine and that brought a lot of awareness too because it was a beautiful magazine that talked about the special places in the forest that people could visit but it also was an educational tool that people could um, take home and read about what was happening with the Forest Service in regards to what they were planning and doing to the forest. Um, and so that became uh, a movement that we there were, and I worked there in the office for a while and helped develop the membership and I think at one time there were 1,800 members, but we had members from a lot of other states, and everybody was, they'd come to meetings, and then uh, the Forest Service changed management and sent in uh, Glenn Gaines, who We had meetings in the Wild Alabama office, what we called the war room back there, at Wren and the trading post. And uh, I was the uh, secretary, kept the minutes for those meetings. 
and we'd meet with the with him and some of the Forest Service members and we went to Washington one time and lobbied the the congressional the Congress and the Senate up there um, to try to get that was during the trying to get the National Monument when we went lobbying. Um, it was a great movement to try to change the way things were and when Glenn came in he was a PR person and everybody liked him but he didn't stay very long and then he left and I think basically the plan that we came up with or that they was hammered out um, turned turned into actually another logging plan that's my opinion of it and I don't understand why the Forest Service, if you're a person and you have a job and you're responsible for doing this job and you don't do your job correctly or you keep making these mistakes like over there across on the west-northwest side of 223, when we were hiking one day down on Flanagan Creek, we'd come out 29 where it comes in to 223 that goes to uh, gum pond there was a logging truck sitting out there and it was loaded with hardwoods and we kept hearing the saw run down there you know and so that after our hike that day when we got back to our homes Jim Fisher I believe it was contacted Mark Kalinsky Malet what is his name? <laughs> I'm getting him and Vince mixed up. Maleski and Kalinsky. Mark Kalinsky. Okay. So he contacted Mark. Mark went over there and checked it out. And they uh, were cutting hardwoods. But they had sold that as a pine without a pine plantation without going in there and actually looking at it. So I don't understand. And it same thing happened. The Forest Service claims over there off of Hickory Grove Road, they claimed that that was the same thing. It was a mistake. Why do people, uh, why are people in government allowed to do these same things over and over? They make mistakes, they pass the books, they lie. Why are they keeping their jobs? People ought to be enraged about that. You wouldn't be able to keep your job if you had a job to do and, and made all those mistakes. I mean, those are serious mistakes. Think about all the birds and bees and animals that lost their livelihood, the squirrels and the deer that came there to eat those acorns and hickory nuts. I mean, it takes like 40 years for some of those things to even start producing food again. And it's just, it's a crime, and they shouldn't be allowed to keep their jobs. I don't understand that. I've been reading for the second time playing God in Yellowstone. And it turns out that the Park Service, and I suspect the same thing of the U.S. Forest Service, the Park Service from the that inception of that national park out there, they lied. They never did tell the truth about the wolves and the predators that they killed off. They lied every time they opened their mouth. They're liars. And you all you have to do is read that book to know that Park Service is nothing but a bunch of of liars, and I doubt very seriously if anything has changed. The Forest Service actually threatened to kill Lamar, and we went to a meeting at the Lindsay Hall Church on Leola Road one night. There was a whole bunch of people there. The church was filled with people for and against this may have been National Monument at that time. And uh, anyway, they were passing around this petition for people to sign that were for, uh, against, against the National Monument. They were collecting signatures. Well, when it got to me, I'm a criminal, I guess. I folded it up and put it in my notebook, and it didn't go any further. I kept the thing. So, but anyway... When the meeting was over, Lamar was a speaker, and there was somebody else speaking for, and he was speaking for or against, and somebody else speaking for or against. I mean, you got to do something, right? Do what you can do. Um, but at, after the meeting, 
those guys that were against Lot the church, and they told them, I said, we're going to teach you a lesson. And the preacher of that church was there, and he said, guys, you got to remember where you are. And I remember Charles Borden was, was riding with Lamar that night, and uh, so they let him out, and they took off. I mean, they were in a hurry to leave because they were threatening him. So, yeah, and one time we had been hiking systematically. We'd go a few miles down Caney Creek, and so we were getting close to that road that comes in off of County Road 2 and used to cross there at the low-pressure bridge. You know where I'm talking about. Comes in? Yes. Yeah, okay. So we were going to come out. We left a car on that road, and we I don't know. We probably started on the other side up there on Caney Creek Road somewhere on 228. We came down, so we were bushwhacking back to the car, and we crossed this private property. We didn't know that it was private property because we were coming in from Caney Creek, and it wasn't signed down there. But we get up across this property, and there's this gate. So we could walk around the gate and turn around. There's, we could see there was a sign on the gate. Turn around and look, and there's a big sign like this, a big metal sign. It says, no wild Alabama hikers, no Lamar Marshall. <laughs> I took a picture of that sign and framed it and sent it to Lamar for Christmas. So, yeah, those were scary times at times and they spray painted kill Lamar Marshall on the bathroom down at the picnic area. Um, and what was that anger about? What do you think its root really was? Some of the people that were in holders there, uh, this blonde-headed woman, I believe she's on Hickory Grove Road. Uh, I believe she was at, had chicken houses. I don't know her name. But anyway, they got this wise youth group from out west to come in. And there was a meeting uh, at the, I want to say, the Legion Hall down at Double Springs. It was just south of Double Springs going on toward, let's see, it would be 33 going on south toward, know where I'm talking about, Natural Bridge? Natural Bridge, yeah. Oh. It's, it's a little bit south of Double Springs going toward Natural Bridge. To the left, there's a big building back there. And they had a, a meeting back there. And, and Lamar wouldn't go because he's afraid that they would kill him. And they, they were had this uh, wise youth group come and talk. And some other people came and talked, too. And I went and stood in the door. Ted Kuzma and Wally Walensky rode with me. And I took a box full of Wild Alabama magazines, and I stood at the door and passed them out as they came in. Most people said, thank you. But once in a while, one of them would look at it and say, I don't want that thing, you know. <laughs> but uh, they had that big meeting down there and got these wise used people coming in here telling lies. They told the people that if they allowed this national monument, they would not be able to access the roads into their homes, that the roads through the forest would be closed. I don't remember all the things, that, but they told a whole bunch of lies to these people. And that was one thing that happened, I think, that really had, no, they didn't, I don't think they thought that. This wise youth group is a bunch of people who want to be able to exploit, this is my understanding of it. They want to be able to go in anytime they want to. They want access. They want to be able to cut timber. They want to be able to drill oil wells. They want to be able to, to do anything and everything. It's public lands. We don't want any more public lands set aside, you know, and protected. I think that's the whole thing. They just didn't want any more lands protected. It's They want to be able to exploit it. I think that's the whole thing. They would lose their land they told them that people would be coming and camping in their pastures and in their yards and all, that they couldn't do anything about it. And they were extremists. They were. And I think that's so interesting because when in England and in the UK, you know, there's, there's no land that you can't walk across. It's just a national, and everyone, it's not a problem. You can hike across, there are these national hiking paths or they just call them walking paths. Uh -huh. 
and that you just cross people's land, and that's for everyone. Yeah, that's why it should totally be. It's a totally different mentality. Mm -hmm. One time that's I was like standing be. in this cave and looking around and just kind of, I mean, like, what? What's going to happen because of what, like, what you're talking about, this kind of aggressive thing if you go on someone's yeah, property. Yeah. Well, a man walked up and looked at me and he goes, oh, you must be American. <laughs> Only the Americans are afraid to cross cross through the gates on our walking it's path. It's because... It's free. You can... It's, a, it's a, what we do. Please. We came here as a horde of thieves, and it's mine by them, and you better stop. But um, at this stage in my life, I'm just trying to live peacefully and get along with everybody and... We have a discussion every once in a while, you know, in the forest when we're hiking. Um, like when they're burning, last year we saw where they were burning. Well, Janice and I saw it too, right down to the water, right down to the bluff line, you know, and the a lot of the uh, mountain laurel and the things that grow along those bluff lines had died out. Some of them are coming back in some places, I noticed, but you can tell it's new growth. They're not old and tangly where you have to get down and crawl through them, you know, that kind of thing. So we talk about that uh, some, about the, the the person who is the firebug doesn't seem to care. He, he's a firebug. <laughs> I don't know how else you'd say it. And a, an instance, for instance, um, when I say that I, I doubt very seriously if the Forest Service is any better uh, truth tellers than the National Park Service. And we were hiking, uh, you know where Beacon Hill is, where they used to have a beacon that had a light going around so planes could see. Beacon Hill, it's um, that hill, you know where um, that there's a, a waterfall down to the left in there before you get to that road and it's just before the fire tower on 33 there's a road that goes through down there and the there's a 40 acre property back there that the indians own oh yeah taps cemetery yes. and then tapsville fall is under there okay that hill on the left as you're going toward that road and the pine plantation that goes down to Tapsville Falls. That hill on your left, there's a pulley in there. That's where the beacon was on that hill. So that's Beacon Hill. We had been on hiking on Beach Creek back in there, and we probably started maybe off of Leola. I'm not sure where we started. But anyway, we came out Beacon Hill, and we got up there. We started finding these things about the size of a ping pong ball, but they're gray. And they had a hole in them, and they were burned. Well, I asked Lamar about it, and they're fire starters that they shoot out of helicopters or airplanes. And they were using those to start those fires. We first found the, some of them floating down there in Beach Creek. So we came up through there, and we picked up a whole bunch of them. And I took them home, and, you know, right there by the back door up on the mountain where that, um, where I threw a seed, a seed pod down for a, one of those uh, honey locusts, <laughs> and it came up right there. I just piled them down because I took to the Forest Service meeting, the liaison panel meeting, and I said, I want to know what this is, and y'all are leaving them out there in the forest. We're not supposed to be polluting the forest, but y'all are shooting these things out there, and they're laying there. And one of the guys goes, oh, they biodegrade. Okay, I thought, okay. I can show them to you today, and that was several years ago. They haven't biodegraded one bit. So that's a lie. After you, after you met Lamar. Okay. After I met Lamar, I gave the $200 to be one of the 12 of the Turtle Clan. I didn't accept the necklace, uh, but I was one of the 12 that gave the $200 donation for that. And Patton... Pat and Farron did too. I don't remember who else. But anyway, mm, 
I talked to people. I started leading hikes once a month for Wild Alabama. I was working in the trading post. And I would talk to the hikers that were going out. So just basically talking to people. I talked to everybody I could. I uh, talked to my brothers and sisters and just maybe manage, I guess, just talk, talk to people, try to educate people what was going on. Um, after I, this may have been before I started working for Wild Alabama, uh, I took the magazines to Werner's and Coleman and some different places and set them up to sell them. And um, I'm not sure we ever got the money, but anyway, we got the magazines out there. <laughs> uh, then I started working for, Carla came out, she heard me talking to people that would come up, you know, in the store. I'd talk to people if I could, and she heard me. So she came out there and asked me to come back there and work, and I did. And I worked on memberships and uh, wrote letters to people for funding, you know, and... Then she had me to take over. Lamar moved his office in the back to get away from people. So she took the corner office and put me in that other office. And I started managing the payroll and paying the bills, that kind of thing. So, And I took the money that Lloyd sent every month. He'd send $5,000 every month. And that's how Lamar was able to, and I hope that Lloyd's getting credit somewhere in here for this, because without Lloyd Clayton, I'm not sure. Okay, not very, very, yes, yeah, true, because I took the money to the bank that came every month as regular as clockwork for a long time. They paid 5000 a month, so Lamar. Mm -mm. And Nancy, uh, Lloyd's wife, Nancy Camack, was... I wish we could talk to her. Lord, she was wonderful. I went hiking. Yeah. Another thing that's still going is when when um, President Obama was elected, oh, I was so excited. And at the end of two terms, so damn disappointed. Um, but he said, Let's, we're going to do things. Let's have this uh, day of service. So... We got together and we had a day of service, and that's still going on too. Remember, we went out and picked up mm -hmm. some super sites. That may have been when when we they were doing, and they had some students, at least one, maybe more than one student, come down from Duke to help do a, a old growth survey. Mm -hmm. And Jim and I had this girl, and we we did the survey down uh, Bourne Creek from the other side off of, of um, what's the church over there uh, on 236 Mountain Springs Church. We started over that way some way, came down, came around Borden, came out and came on up there. And we dr drilled one of those holes in one of those big cypress trees down there behind the red camp in that cypress grove we did some sur we did a survey like a, one day a core sample mm -hmm. core sample yeah. yeah yeah we did one of those and i don't remember what else we did but i remember jim saying yeah says we're doing this so the forest service can find them and cut them down <laughs> i guess the the fact that so many people from so many states became aware of uh, Bankhead potential of being turned into a pine plantation. There was, they were willing to give their time, their money, but we were not the kind of eco-warriors you would find with, uh, is it, was it Earth First, where they go out and monkey wrench machinery and things, I do not know of one instance when anybody, any one of us, ever destroyed anything. Unless putting that petition in my notebook and leaving with it. <laughs> that probably 
I don't know. <laughs> but we didn't destroy things. We didn't monkey wrench machinery or put nails in trees to for saws or anything like that. We didn't do that. But it was money and spirit. I mean, the fact that the whole movement started uh, with Indian Tomb Hollow. I mean, that, that really defines it as a, as a spirit-driven movement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And those drums must work because that place got protected. I know one time there was a drumming in Moulton. They got together out there and brought those drums and people went to that park, I guess it was, and sat on the bleachers and you must have... Oh. Was that Perrin? Yeah, and we did that in Indian Tomb as well and danced. Uh, we did that in Indian Tomb one night or more than one night. So those Indian drums spoke and they were heard. Yeah. Can you tell us more about Not that? Indian Tomb, Kinlock. Kinlock. Oh, in we the did shelter? it in the shelter at mm -hmm. Kinlock more than once. Yeah. Can I tell us? Can you tell more about that? A drum the drumming ceremony? The, who was there? Oh. Let's see, Farron and his family, his two sons, uh, Pat, Charles Borden, myself, uh, Tara Manasco, maybe Jim and uh, Faye, I'm not sure, Ruth, I mean. Um, there was a lot of people there. I didn't know a lot of them. But we drummed, and Bobby Gillespie was there, and we'd sing. He and I sat at the camp fire and sang songs and we all danced all danced um, do you remember the songs you sang it was some of the songs Brooke Medicine Eagle had a CD of that I knew uh, <clears throat> one of them is uh, about the earth Mother, I feel you under my feet. Mother, I feel your heart beat. Mother, I don't remember the rest of it. Hey, 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 hey. That was one of them. And I don't remember the others, but it's been a long time. Were you there? That may have been before I met you. This was really early. I think when he was married to Dawn at that time. May have been. I guess they called her Donna. Donna. Uh-huh. That was her name. Yeah. That must have been a powerful experience. It, it was. It was beautiful. It was. Man, I want to go do that. Yeah. I want to do that now. Was that, uh, was that the Blue Plan? Yeah. That was heading that up? Yeah. Sure was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They also got Oakville, you know, protected and and into uh, the tribe, I guess. Anyway, it's uh, a place where everybody can go now. It was just on somebody's farm. They acquired that, got grants. Martha Contrell was uh, involved in that, so if you're in interested in that, talk to her. Oh, uh, you mean... Oakville, where the museum is? Yeah, Oakville. What What did I say? Is that you said okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I always associated that with Butch. Butch was there, but Martha helped do that. Okay. If I'm not mistaken, Bobby Gillespie was very instrumental in that, too. But Martha Cantrell could probably tell you more about that than I can. Yeah. Yep. Butch, Martha, and Bobby. That would be three people that I know that were instrumental in that. Sorry, Ann, I got in your way. Saying hello. <laughs> okay. Toe to toe. Do you have any advice for young people today in terms of the fight for the last wild places? Um, 
you got to search out the truth for yourself. Read. The news media is not going to tell you the whole of it. The Forest Service is not going to tell you the whole of it. The government is not going to tell you the whole of it. you got to search for the truth if you want to know it. And we need to. We need to search for the truth for ourselves and for our future and for the future of anything that we hold sacred in this country because the corporations and the Republicans are after it. They want it all in public hands. In private hands, mm -hmm. so you got to dig. Don't depend on anybody's word. Find it for yourself. I really wonder about how do you teach young people a value beyond the prescribed spiritual values that are in, found in, you know, hierarchical religion, and beyond value that's determined by material wealth. How do you help bring these young beings into understanding the true meaning of wealth, expansive meaning of wealth, um, I, I'm not sure. That is complex, isn't it? Very complex. Actually, and I think the the best teachers are the parents. But how do you get that across to the parents? Um, I don't believe in established religions. Um, and I taught my children to question. Just because it's written in a book, you still got to question it. If it's a school book, because they hide things, they don't tell the truth again, they don't tell the truth about some things in the books, you got each person has to find for their own self what that spiritual thing is that speaks to them, that guides them. They got to find it for themselves. I don't know, Ann, that is so complex. And it's so hard. Um, people are so isolated from nature. And I think if you're isolated from nature, you're also isolated from the mother spirit. So I have no idea. I think, I think that's the answer. Sacred feminine. Is to, is to solve that problem, the isolation from nature. Mm -hmm. Because I think... Um, when we spend, the more time we spend in nature, the closer we come to what you're suggesting, you know, finding the true, true value and true, true wealth instead of this superficial wealth. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, it sounds simple, but being in the wild places, I think that's the answer because that changes you. Janice, was it you that told me recently uh, offered a class, a field trip, and no one wanted to go? The kids didn't want to go? Who told me that? Somebody told me that recently that they offered to take children. I think they were going to the forest, and nobody wanted to go. Like a school field trip? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't you. I don't know who it was, but somebody told me that. So... It's got to begin at home, too. First of all, somehow or other, educate the parents. If you could get the parents away from the ball games. Um, yeah, and that points to the, um, to giving people time so that you have time. I just, remember so much time in my childhood when I just laid in fields and looked at ants and played in the dirt and had tea, ser tea parties with acorn caps and had a whole relationship with just the backyard where yeah, we, you know, I did the same thing. There's a little that creek, creek next right door. there. <laughs> Go to the creek and just squat and look at stuff. Yeah, And be exactly. in a relationship with 
sounds and the smells and the sights and the textures and there's mm -hmm. so many textures. Oh yeah. Wow, all the kinds and of moss. smells. Smells. I love the way the barn smells and the cow pies in the pasture. <laughs> and the leaves when they're wet and beginning to be taken away by the microbes that smell so good. Yeah. And kids now, most kids now don't have that because their time is structured. And sitting there doing this in front of the TV. And I think that's a huge loss. I do to too. To not have that freedom to be just in nature. And I, I really agree with you. I think it's a, an actual plan that people who make money from that have wanted to herd people into a way that they can control them mm -hmm. so that they are manipulating the planet in ways that we won't know because mm -hmm. we're not actually exploring, we're not outside. Um, and so you just don't, don't even, you don't know that you don't have a relationship with it because you don't even know about mm -hmm. it. Because the other way is becoming normalized. I guess a, a good way, if you had enough people in, in places like Janice that can go into the schools and present programs while they're still little, while they're still curious, and uh, have to make it really interesting, but slides and field trips and hands-on kind of things, that could help too. But then you still got this these millions in the ghettos and places like that that mm -hmm. need that so badly. Well, there's, there's so much material wealth. I mean, we could literally decide to just end poverty and end it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's doable. Mm -hmm. But I realize, like, I, I think I'm different from a lot of people and I actually believe in human progress. I don't think that war is inevitable. I think that we can train our minds to love and turn away from fear. I mean, I think that's really doable. But there's, it seems that that's not in general what the society, any society practically, it's not no. just here. It's in general, there seems to be a desire in the human for this kind of hierarchical power that the farther bigger the hierarchy gets, the farther you get away from the essential truths of life. And that seems like it's everywhere. You, and the essential truth being that sacred feminine that you move mm -hmm. farther and farther mm -hmm. away from. It would seem that way. I told Jim not, not long ago, maybe a couple of weeks ago, it seems like part of society is evolving, and but the whole other part, and maybe the majority, is going the other way, devolving from humanity, from what it should mean to be a human. Don't understand that. It's, um, I guess it's the materialistic corporate goals and greed. Greed, exactly. Greed Greedy thieves, hordes, hordes, hordes of thieves. But again, I think greed is a misunderstanding of what it is to be wealthy, like what it is to be successful with those terms being very close, closely aligned. And so it seems like in general, most people think that just for their family, they wall every, they wall themselves in and have a big, great successful situation that they can turn away and call it a success. But to me, that essential teaching that if my neighbor's in pain, I'm in pain, that is so much, not just, 
not just spiritually better, but it's more practical that everybody comes up. But those people that have that wealth, they never have enough. Yeah. It's never it's enough. Kind of like another brain never of enough. Human being or something. It, it is. Or a disorder. It's, yeah, chaos, really. It's like, what do you, some kind of psychological or emotional disorder? Yeah, you read something like, oh, somebody spent $10,000 to get their hair done. Like, wait, what? Does this what? <laughs> <laughs> what does that happen? Do they, have, do they know about these whole things? Or are you just like washing? <laughs> CBS has a, I, I can help you with that problem for only $5,000. Mm. <laughs> Your efforts brought about lasting change. In a world where many people are disillusioned, what is your view? I think people are disillusioned, but on the other hand, you never know where a seed will sprout up and prosper. One time I was talking to a neighbor and this has been, this was probably, gosh, in the, maybe around 2003 or four. No, it was before that. This would have been in the late 90s. And we were talking about wildlife and snakes and things like that. And I said, but you, you know, the way I think is that that being, whether it's a snake or a woodpecker or a bird, whatever it is, is just trying to get along in the world, just like you and I are. They need their home. They need their food. They need their water. They need the same kinds of things that we need. And they're just trying to get along in the world like we are. And that person, that resonated with that person. And I'll guarantee you there's no telling how many other people that that person has shared that very little sentence with that has made a little bit of difference in somebody's life. So I guess a seed here and there is, might be the best we can do. Is that the answer to that question? I've forgotten the question. <laughs> I think that's a great answer. The question was, um, in a world where many people are disillusioned, what is your view? Yeah, that's my view. Um, that everything's just trying to get along like we are. I'm talking about the other things that we share this planet with. Just trying to get along like we are. We have to allow them that and even help to protect that right for them to do that. As someone who has fought for wild places and who loves wild places, do you feel optimistic about the future of wild places? You have to have hope. You have to have hope. A hope that more people can come to see the value of the wild places and the value for keeping it wild and protecting the wild things that that are, that are there. Because <clears throat> we, whether we know it or not, we depend on that just as much as the things that live there do, whether we're aware of it or not. That's our health involved in that too. So you have to have hope that that can be and that those places can remain. <clears throat> but at the same time,
I think we need to watch the politicians closely, not what they say, but what they do, and be ready to step in as needed to communicate and protect those places because I think if we don't do that then the horde of thieves that want to exploit everything will destroy it. So, But I guess as long as there are people like us here at this table and the people that we know that belong at this table as long as we're talking to people and sharing ideas I think there's some hope I hope I hope <laughs> what do you think about that Ann? I think I see, I see a lot of women who are trying to get into politics mm -hmm. to change a conversation, but I'm not sure if politics is the path for changing a conversation. Like, I think sort of possibly that, so I've really read a lot of history. I love studying history from all over the world. And what I see is that politics changes people. I agree. So it's almost like you have to have these warriors who are outside of it fighting the, the whole political system because it seems like from day one you have a system, the system's corrupt, people outside of it say it's corrupt. They become warriors, they fight the system, they topple the system, they become a system, Same they thing become again. corrupt. I mean, I've, I've never seen an example where that doesn't happen in any kind of hierarchical structure. Um, I want to believe it's true, but like I see some of the people in, in this, in the United States government, and it definitely changes the person. So, I don't think, I mean, I have tremendous hope, because for one thing, my understanding is that nature is a hell of a lot stronger than we are, and can just wipe us out, and will, if we don't honor her properly, which we're not. That's true, we're not. So, I get great hope from that understanding that nature's going to kick our ass just wipes out self-selection mm -hmm. mm -hmm. well if we raise the earth's not going to be destroyed because of the temperature rising she has a molten core we're the ones who won't be able to live here <laughs> and I find that to be very comforting I love that I agree with that too so I can I cannot not get really depressed some of the time. Because I'm just a little be. I'm an experiment. I'm glad to see that there are more women becoming into politics. Yeah, and maybe I, we'll be able to I'm change. hoping that they are less corruptible than these men are. Um, some of them may be. Elizabeth Warren, I really, really like her. And I wish Gilbrand would shut up and go home and let Elizabeth do her thing, give her a chance. Right. And her running mate needs to be Bernie Sanders. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to write to her. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah. So, I mean, the men, you know, it's been patriarchal or whatever, however the word is. I, I'm losing my words. I'm old now. Um for a long time. Let's have the matriarchs in here for a while and see if something can't change. I mean, we're the mothers.
Thanks to cellist Craig Haltgren for our theme music. Thanks to Farron Weeks and the White Horse Singers for our episode music. Thanks to Janice Barrett with Wild South for her help with this episode. Learn more about Present Tense Podcast at greenbucketpress.com backslash present-tense-podcast. Learn more about the work of Wild South on wildsouth.org. We're halfway through the series, so subscribe and follow us as we hear from some of the warriors who fought to save Alabama's last wild places. Until next time.